Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words, but not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Does it make a difference? I mean, that, that's what I've used in the past. So, oh, okay. sounds fine then. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, I'm really kind of surprised. Yeah, I've heard a lot of podcast audio that just is not very good, including ours. Well, including ours, but I would have to say Zoom does a nice job with the recordings, and actually, I don't know if it handles how it handles background sounds or whatever, but it actually makes it better than some more professionally produced. Um, podcasts out there yeah so okay cool cool uh let's dive in since we only have a few minutes to discuss a all couple right. topics hey, for quite so, um, dive in all right we're shooting for s's right. today so today we're on the s so we're saying hi to scotty mr scotty no, stopper hey. stopper i work well i don't have an s so i gotta go so, we can call you morton salt when it Salt, rains, it pours. Salted Morton. All right. Salty Morton. So the S letter is the letter of the day. That's a rather yes. subversive letter, don't you think? <gasps> it just kind of sneaks around. Guess what, buddy? That's exactly one of the words we're going to use because we have a guest. Now, well, uh, you got to help me real quick before he hops on. Is it Gilliard? Is that how you say his name? Gilliard? Dominique Gilliard? Last name? That's how the uh, audiobook guy said it, but oh. I was like, cool. Well, that's so I was like, cool. That's got to be what it is. But then throughout the book, he mispronounced several words. That I, so I was like, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that could be the very first question that you pose. Um, so <laughs> speaking of S, another word, another letter for or another word for the letter S is sly or shady. Shady. You published a story a couple of days ago about a shady football coach, but not just a coach. I, I, I believe there was there were other coaches and the players and the players' families. They knew what was going down where they tried to get their kids into a limelight so they could get yes. the scholarships. Money and, for the program. Yeah, it's program money. Yeah. Yep. And there, there's a there's a there's a certain degree to which I would say they are just cogs in the manufacturing of sure. D1 athletes. And they, they just got sucked in and thought, hey, we can do this. Um, yeah. It's and, a young program. I mean, not just young football program, a young school, only three years old. So Online. Yep, <laughs> online. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean. No, but apparently they want to get some cachet or some cash, cash and cachet. And yeah, maybe, and uh, it was probably easy to convince the parents and the athletes to go along with it because they were going to be going against the number one program in the, the country, country, the number one high school. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, and that high school that's the number one high school in the country isn't really a high school either. I mean, it's it's right. a specialty boutique kind of niche program. Yep. It's, it's not so they're a, already milking the cow. They they and they've been doing it for I don't know a decade. Oh, I don't forever. know how oh, forever I bet time. Yep. And what's a shame is that the the market of uh, of 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 fandom, you know, the the kind of player we want to pay a ticket price for at a football game, is producing this kind of horrid um, kind of stuff. Yes. And. I think, you know, one of the things, one of the little diatribes I go on from time to time, but I think I mentioned my conversation I had with a, a track coach at, uh, down in Arizona who said at his school, they get athletes that they develop. Yeah. But he said the school across town, the big, you know, shiny D1 school comes to them usually like after his athletes third year and says, hey, could we have them transfer over to our school? And this coach goes, no. You weren't willing to develop them. You don't get their glory. That's right. And so college programs have given up on developing athletes. They want somebody who's going to be stellar from, from the first snap. That's right. um, and that's, that's just not what college is meant to be. And as a coach, that's not what we're trying to get young people to, to sign up for. We want them to be human, better human beings. And programs like this, to me, don't create better human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so... And then ESPN, you know, they're where they lie at fault too, because they want to, you know, the whole goal was uh, you need to prove to us you're worthy of getting on here. We got this top program. We got to put them against, we want it to be on the schedule against somebody worthy. So how many D1 players do you got on your roster? And then they lied about right. how many, you know, they've got letters from this school and that school and blah, blah, blah. Oh my. And they didn't go bother they didn't, uh, fact checking no no and then the schedule was that they played two games within three days awful now awful. the 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 team that has been accused of being shady was that they had 30 30 30 kids on the team or something like that it was a small team so it's small and they had a number of kids playing both sides of the ball both so eight and the other quarters team, what's the other name igf or i am what's what's the other school yeah. Oh goodness, you would ask that, wouldn't you? <laughs> I think it, you know it's three letters. I thought it was IGF. Something about yeah. Florida. Something. But, yep. but I mean, they they've been they've been around for a long time, and I'm sure they've got a full squad of single position players. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They probably have a first string, second string, you know, offense and defensive line. Yep. So you know, somebody gets rattled, they pull them out. Yep. But this is that think- so also becomes like abuse. Exactly. Mental. I mean, the, the physical abuse and mental, the mind, you know, the brain that they take. Um, yeah. I think you're only allowed. It might only be five quarters uh, a week. And that was back, well, I think, when I was in high school. So maybe it's, it's even a, less than that now. That that has to do with, well, you played football in Idaho. That's Idaho state rule. Those are governed by the, the high school, you know, athletics associations. Oh, sure activities associations there's another part of this article is that those activity organizations do not monitor cross state lines so the Ohio the other one's a school from Florida that's right uh, who's checking in on you know those kinds of things yep and I don't know it's just it's it's disappointing but it's also not surprising that that's what we've done sadly yeah slimy shady football coaches and programs 
Yeah. So let's. What's a S word on a on a more uh, shiny, smiley <laughs> note? Ooh. Oh. Oh. Uh, well, locally here, sunshine. It hasn't been too smoky lately, uh, uh, so that's been nice. I don't. I know. Maybe down there, it probably still is. But it it just it just rolled in. We had we had such blue skies on 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 Saturday and Sunday. We we're like okay. walking around, staring at the sky, going, "Oh wow, what is that? We have not seen that for months." Yeah, feels good. Yeah, it really. <sighs> And it drove the temperature up almost 20 degrees. You know, it was like in the mid 80s and it got up to, you know, what, 92 on Sunday with hotter than it had been for a long time because there was no shadow, no shade from the smoke. <laughs> oh, wow. Yep. So, well, we've been able to enjoy that at least over here. So, uh, and that, that big fire outside of town is uh, taken care of. It's still going, but um, I believe the. There just must be something about the way the wind is right now or, or something along those lines. I mean, right now there's no wind. Yeah. I mean, slight breeze, but I mean, you know, it must've been something enough to kind of get it going. Either that or it's far enough away now. I mean, it's still going. But you know, One of the things people who are not in the Pacific Northwest or the Intermountain West, they just don't understand these fires. I don't, you know, they, they, they just keep going. Yeah. Oh yeah. Some of them will go until winter, you know, until the snow yeah. basically. And some of them, probably not in your area, because it's not a heavily wooded area. You're a lowland area. Right. Uh, but the ones where they get uh, more snow piled on top, mm -hmm. they tend to have root fires. Oh. You know, the networks of roots underground can uh, continue to burn embers. Oh, my gosh. And then as the soil dries out over the spring and summer, it can pop up. And <sighs> we have a guest. Hey, we have, we have a guest. I'm gonna admit. So, so we're gonna go from talking about subversive root fires, <laughs> yes, to subversive witness with our guest Dominique Gilliard. I hope is how it's pronounced. <laughs> I'm gonna admit him right now. Here we go. All right. All right. Looks like I got the ding dong. The ding that. He's on. Let's see what we got. Hey, how's it going? Hey, I can hey, hear you. All right. all right. Sounds working. It's perfect. Yes. All right. Welcome. Hey, thanks for joining us today, man. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Have y'all been having sound issues with Zoom too? Yes. Uh, Cody's <laughs> hosting and he was having a hard time getting us going earlier. So, but yeah. I think we're okay right now. I think there was something funky there? going. Something funky was going on with Zoom at the end of last week where I would log on to a meeting and it would say, hey, troubleshoot and do this. And then I do that. And then it wouldn't recognize that I did what it told me to do. And so I would be on, but no one could hear me. Oh. And so there was like an audio thing. I think they were trying to update the platform and it just didn't okay. go seamlessly. So oh. <laughs> sounds familiar. There should so, never be so, problems so many, ever anymore. Well, I, I'm. This is Craig. I'm. I'm Craig. Uh, and uh, just wanted to let you know that the way we do our interviews is we record without editing. So if you like say something embarrassing or whatever, sorry, <laughs> um, we're just too lazy to go back and we, edit. <laughs> and just we so can, you know, if, I thought this needs to be a warning before we go too far. The recording is already recording. So. <laughs> <laughs> we have started. 
we did. Cody, Cody um, didn't. So <laughs> <laughs> I did give him a, a warning before. Actually, sorry, I don't want to assume your pronouns, Dominique. Is uh, he him? Pronoun? Yep. Yep. Okay. Good. All right. Perfect. Yes. So, and the other thing is, I think I have your last name right. Is it Gilliard? A hard G, Gilliard. Ah, dang yep. it. So, so <laughs> the reason I went with Gilliard is because I'm listening to the audio version and the the um, narrator said Gilliard at the beginning. And I was like, yeah. oh, that's got to be it. <laughs> no, it's Gilliard. And okay. That would probably that would be the French way to pronounce it, and all yeah. three all three of my names are French, so that would be right. logical for people to do that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I go with the the U.S. Du Bois and the Hard G Gilliard. That's the Idaho <laughs> right. Du Bois. So yeah. there's a town in Idaho called Du Bois, and it was very close to where I grew up. So I yeah, guess. that the capital city of of uh, Idaho is a French word that Bois doesn't pronounce Boise. Bois, yeah, yeah, it's Boise. So yeah. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So I grew up in Idaho. Craig lives in Idaho currently, and I'm technically on the border of Idaho in Clarkston, Washington. So, yeah, that's where we're from. We're Pacific Northwesterners. Yep. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, Dominic, we wanted to have you on to talk about your book, Subversive Witness, and I finished it yesterday. Um, it's fantastic. I have a lot of questions, but it's uh, one I'm going to highly, highly recommend. Actually, my first question is formation of the book. Um, when I'm so I'm a I'm a pastor, and when I'm when I wrapped it, wrapped it up, I was like, that was like a series of sermons. Did you was this a sermon series that maybe you preached at your church? I know you're a pastor of a church, correct? Uh oh, did we lose? Dominique, it's here now. Yeah, okay. it froze. Oh, okay. <laughs> I fro it froze right when you said, "As a pastor." Oh, you were talking okay. about so, the... yeah. So as I was reading the book, or I, I did the audio and mix of the the Kindle and the audio. Um, to me, I, I thought this is a sermon series. Like this could totally be a sermon series. Is that how was that how it came? Out? Um, that's not explicitly kind of how it came together, but they are sermons that I preach. Um, and so um, I haven't preached all of them. Um, I definitely have preached the uh, Pharaoh's daughter um, and the uh, Paul and Silas uh, as sermons. Uh, the other ones I haven't actually preached yet, but they okay. definitely are sermons in the making. Uh, yeah. They, they do preach well. I mean, if I wanted to, I could just, I, I really love the Vashti story. It's like, man, that would be an awesome one to take out and just kind of put out there. It's like, I'll just have to have large quotations before and at the end of whatever I say. for <laughs> <laughs> Straight from the mouth of Pastor Dominique. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, uh, yeah. Cause like every chapter is essentially a, a biblical story or a character and you take their, you know, essentially their relationship to privilege and how they've steward, stewarded their privilege and, and the outcomes and all that. So, yeah, I, I thought, wow, I bet I, I almost thought, yeah, he, he did a sermon series first and then was like, ah, oh, this could make a great book. But there you go. The thought more and maybe we will do this in the podcast was more so I realized that there was this theme of all of these biblical passages that... I think we 
have reduced to children's Sunday school lessons and mm-hmm. that we haven't gone back as an, as adults to reckon with their implications for our uh, spiritual formation and in adulthood. And right. I think in doing so, we have left out a lot of really critical uh, ethical commissions of scripture and have really not gleaned all the text has to offer for us yeah so that was more the the conscious thing that was going on in my mind like because I just kept noticing like yeah everybody knows this passage but like no one really preaches and teaches these passages like this because you know all we do is talk about him Zacchaeus is a wee little man and you know the spirit (laughs) brought down the walls in the prison and like you know and so that's all we do with them. And I'm like, no, it's got more to say than that. So, oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. One in particular that really jumped out to me was the, uh, and you, it was near the beginning of the book. So I was like, oh my gosh, this book is going to be incredible. And it was the um, uh, story, the uh, unpacking of the deacons oh, and, the acts, acts and, yeah. and how they're formed. I'd never, ever have, has anyone ever presented it to me as like, this is racially what was happening. Uh, in that situation and that all of them were Hellenistic, uh, you know, chosen specifically because of that. I I don't want to give away too much, but man, can you unpack a little bit of what was going on there? Yeah, I think it's, you know, important to, to see, you know, this was a missional church that was actually being fruitful and they were actually, you know, diligently attending to the gospel but um it goes to show that you know living out our life of faith is not just about good intentions um because while they were doing so much good they were unaware to of injustice that was happening in their midst uh right underneath their noses and it's a passage that really helps us to see that even in the midst of our good intentions, we can still have blind spots. And if we don't have the humility to acknowledge the fact that we might still have blind spots, then when someone brings before us an issue connected to our blind spots, we're going to respond with defensiveness or we're going to try to explain away the problem in a way that actually will prohibit us from being a part of the healing and the restoration of the problem that's happening kind of within our periphery and over what we're stewarding. And one of the beautiful illustrations of that is, you know, this passage in Acts 6, where it shows us like if we are mature enough in our faith that when we hear a complaint that arises from our community and we can soberly look at ourselves and do the work, the inner work and and validate a complaint, then we can actually demonstrate our maturity in Christ by how we respond. Um, We don't have to feel like everything has to be perfect, that we always have to be the ones who are right. We can actually acknowledge that there are some times where even though we're good intentioned, we still miss the mark. And when we miss the mark, 
I really love the fact that they don't just come back and say, hey, you're actually right. Let's let's bandage the wound. They actually say, like, this isn't just like a, a problem that we can tinker around with. This is actually a structural problem. And mm. because it's a structural problem, it deserves a structural response. And they are willing to do the hard work of reconvening the structure so that justice will be done and this won't be a reoccurring problem. And so it's just a beautiful example <coughs> of what what's possible when we're mature enough in our faith to do the sober work of self-examination and systemic and structural examination, because there's a lot of Christians who are like, okay, yeah, we can do the internal search me, oh Lord, prayer, we could do that. But like when it comes to systems and structures, like that's not, sin doesn't impact that or our blind spots don't inform that. And this passage is a corrective to that, that way of thinking. It actually tells us that it does directly impact the care and concern and dignity in which we show as we try to missionally serve people. Um, and, and the other thing I love about that passage is in so many of our congregations, there is this real bifurcation, this real division between uh, evangelism and justice. And uh, we have somehow concluded that these two things are disconnected when scripture consistently shows that they're inherently interconnected. And this passage is a beautiful illustration because as the, the council is able to responsibly respond to the discrimination claim that arises, the gospel flourishes because of their response. People around are looking at the church and they're wanting to see how do we respond when folks help us see some of the blind spots that we have, some of the ways that we have misstepped. And if we misstep and then we respond with a Christ-like humility and we're willing to do what needs to be done, folks are attracted to that. Folks want to be a part of that. But if we respond with defensiveness or we try to explain away the problem or deny that a problem exists, the world is like, that's just more of the same. We can get that from our elected officials. We can get that anywhere. There's nothing distinctive about who and whose you are. But when we show the world that there is something distinctive about who and whose we are, but how we respond to injustice or problems within our midst, then the world wants to know who we are and why we choose to live and love in the ways that we do. And that's, it's such a beautiful story because not only does the gospel explode there, but these people play a critical role in the expansion of the gospel into the Gentile world down the line. And so it's just, it's a beautiful example of why responding to injustice in our midst is not us letting the culture take the take the reins and dictate how we think about the gospel and engage in the gospel it's about us going back to the word of god and actually developing eyes to see and ears to hear how the spirit is compelling us to respond when we see brokenness in our midst i love it i'd like to like to ask a, a question Dominic, and this is probably for for folks who haven't jumped into the topic who haven't seen the book and maybe just kind of as a, almost as a introduction to the topic or an advertisement. What is privilege? How do you define that? And, you know, what, what, because what I found is in, in, in reading the book was you hit that top, you hit that word straight on and you moved it in a direction of, 
it's 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 not about my past it's what i do with what i've received you know what do i do with this privilege where there are a lot of people who will deny privilege um, and thus deny any kind of opportunity to respond out of that privilege so i mean privilege is a, a huge topic and how did you how did you seek to define that and and uh, how did you seek to explain that for for your reader yeah i think privilege is just taking uh again i use the word sober a lot because i think that that's what this work takes it takes sobriety it takes us uh being able to take off <laughs> the lens and and the ways in which we have slowly but surely been uh seduced into conforming to the pattern of this world um where we can see that you know, we live in a world, um, and particularly in a nation in the U.S., where there have been all of these ways in which there has been historically through legislation, custom, practice, um, ways in which there has been the creation of this sliding scale of humanity, where certain people are viewed more as reflective of the image of God than others. Um, and we see this from the founding documents of our US Constitution, where indigenous people are referred to as merciless Indian savages, to the history and legacy of African Americans being considered three fifths of a person and enslaved and considered legally property. Uh, so there is this way in which, if we are sober in our assessment and we can really look at history, we can see the ways in which this has kind of played itself out. Well, talking about privilege is just talking about what are the vestiges of those realities historically, legislatively, and socially in our world? Um, how, how does that history of discrimination in sin, let's just be blunt, that's what it is, uh, this history of sin uh, inform our life together today? Um, and there are still vestiges at play. And, you know, it's not just racial, it's gender as well. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things I really wanted to do about the conversation about privilege, because I think one of the ways that people, one of the reasons why people are so resistant to the conversation about privilege is because most of the times we only talk about white privilege, but there are multiple manifestations of privilege. Um, and I think if we're really going to do the work of Christian discipleship, we need to holistically look at the ways in which unbridled privilege is something that seduces us away from the will of God and seduces us to conform to the patterns of this world. Um, and so when we talk about privilege, we're talking about, um, we're talking about things that, uh, are at play either, that we embody, so how our bodies are constructed, um, our race, our gender, um, our able-bodiedness, our mental cognition, um, or we're talking about uh, realities that, you know, so those are things we're born into in a similar way. We're also talking about uh, citizenship um, and how that really these are things that inform one's life chances in society and their access to um, 
two things. And so I think when we're talking about privilege, we're trying to figure out how do we see the ways in which because of how we, our bodies are constructed or because of what we have, be it our education, be it our vocation, be it our social connections, the world sees and treats us. Um, and we're reckoning with the reality that based off the different privileges we might have or not have, there is a differentiation in how we're seen and treated um, by each other, but also by systems and structures that are at play within our world. And le legislation, uh, this has been true. And so for some folks who this seems abstract, let me try to bring it on the ground. So, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, we're, we're living in a nation where to be Let's just use the Chinese during the Chinese Exclusionary Act. Um, because of your ethnic identity, you were treated very differently than other people in the country at that time. And you were excluded from immigrating into this country for 60 years because of your ethnic identity. That is an embodied privilege that people who didn't get excluded from immigrating into this country were able to take advantage of. Um, when we're talking about, you know, the Japanese internment camps, uh, when we're talking about the fact that we rounded up over 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry just because of their ethnic identity um, and locked them into these camps, which essentially were prison camps. Um, if you weren't Japanese, you had the privilege of not actually being impacted by that legislation. You got to move and exist in our nation in a way in which you weren't having to endure this forced confinement. And so when we're talking about privilege, we're talking about the reality that we live in a history. We live in a nation that has a history of unjust legislation that has disproportionately infected some people and has not impacted others. And those who have not been impacted have lived with the privilege of actually not having to uh, navigate the complexities of systemic sin and institutional uh, legislation that has targeted them and their people groups. So uh, those are some of the things, but we also talk about, you know, modern day manifestations. And I know for some people, they can affirm all this historic stuff. But when we start to talk about the more present realities, that's where they kind of tense up and start to feel a little bit more defensiveness. But in the book, I unpack some of the disparities that still exist in our nation today around school funding um, and how school funding is tied in many states uh, to property taxes and and how that creates this have and have nots of folks who are able to go to schools that are fully resourced to others who go to schools that are you know, uh, back when the documentary Waiting for Superman was popular, they would be called dropout factories, uh, where there is not an equitable level of investment in infrastructure in uh, actual resources, tangible resources like textbooks and technology, all these things that are important. Um, and then you know, for folks who don't know, my first book uh, was called Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. And I talk a lot about our carceral system. And in these, 
these schools that are less invested in and left resourced that are, i.e. dropout factories, they also become this critical pipeline from the school to prison pipeline where kids are going to divest schools that have been divested in and they get moved from schools with a lack of resource to state-of-the-art earmarked prisons uh, where they get all of the resources behind bars that they were denied during when they were free and actually given access to education on the outside. So those are the kind of realities that we're talking about when we talk about privilege. One of the things that made the the word privilege perhaps a little bit easier for folks who are resistant to it to take is the way that you use the Bible stories to talk about these people who were in p- places of privilege. They accepted that privilege they had rather than denying the privilege. And they saw that as an opportunity to participate with God's mission. Yep. Um, and that, that was such a wonderful um, perspective, I think, for those who struggle with this idea of privilege is, you know, Okay, fine. You maybe maybe you don't like the word privilege, but it gives you an opportunity to participate with God. Let's work with that. I thought yeah. that was a wonderful, wonderful perspective on 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 using the positions of privilege for the the characters, the character studies you you provided. Yes, I've I've seen three real responses in congregations, uh, and so let me back up and tell people what I do. Um, so. I serve as the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church. So my job is that I am a pastor to pastors, helping them make connections between biblical justice, uh, Christianity, and our pursuit of life together in trying to create a a racially reconciled and reality uh, in our communities. And so I do that for our churches throughout North America. So that's roughly about 890 congregations that I provide pastoral leadership for for pastors. Um, And so what I've seen as I go across the country doing this work, both within my denomination and beyond, is that there's generally three responses to the conversation of privilege for congregations. Uh, The first response is a congregation will deny that privilege is real, shut the conversation down and say that's an unbiblical concept. The second response is that there is an acknowledgement that privilege informs (laughs) reality, but there is also an acknowledgement that it is such a tricky terrain to navigate that leadership just makes the decision that we would lose too much funding and too many people if we tried to press into this. So we're just going to like sidestep it. And the third response is that leadership and the congregation both affirm that privilege is real. They do the hard work of trying to reckon with privilege. But after doing the work, many people feel so weighed down by the reality of privilege that it creates a missional paralysis. And Mm -hmm. None of those three responses animate our faith and really invite us to participate and demonstrate our faith in ways that allow us to be co-laborers with Christ and restoring the world to God. And so I really started to notice this trend. And as I started to notice this trend, 
I really just went back to the word of God and I was just like, scripture offers us a different way. And that different way is that scripture affirms that privilege is real from the Egyptian empire where you have the Egyptians who have created wealth and prosperity and flourishing and that is dependent upon the dehumanization of their Hebrew neighbors and the exploitation and enslavement of their Hebrew neighbors to uh, the Acts 6 reality we just talked about to the reality that we see in the Persian Empire where an entire people group are going to be you know, eradicated. There are over and over and over again, we see all of these illustrations where scripture is really reckoning with the fact that certain people's lives are very different because of this concept of privilege that we're unpacking throughout the book. But scripture also says, not only does it affirm that privilege is real, but it also tells us that we always have the opportunity to exploit privilege for selfish gain. And this is where we turn back to Jesus because Jesus um, is what we're supposed to pattern our lives after as Christians. And in Philippians 2, we see explicitly scripture tell us that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, had the opportunity to try to exploit. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I think we lost him for a second. I kind of kicked him out or something. What happened? You can rejoin. I believe on his end, it just dropped, I think. So, oh, oh no. Hopefully he rejoins. I'll send him a message. See if well, we can fill up the silence. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's another S. How about silence? Yeah. Silence. There's a, hey, don't be afraid of silence. It, it's an <laughs> all right thing. <laughs> I'm still coming through on your side, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay, I'll send him a message. See if uh, he responds to that. It looks like you dropped. Okay, yeah. So, uh, Craig, uh, the um, one uh, in the physical book, it looks like there's like questions at the end of the chapter. That, yes. You... So, yeah, okay. I've got I've got the um, the Kindle version. Yes. Okay, and, I have and, the Kindle version too. I have a hard copy. I've got three versions actually. But I, oh man, nice. I was, um, I was I got the hard copy to show at church and say, hey, this is something we might study over the fall. So. Oh man, I'm gonna send him a, a link to rejoin real quick. But yeah, question. There are questions for 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 further reflection. Did you did you go through those or? So no. So I just noticed them when I opened up the Kindle one here recently because I've been doing the audio version. But see, when I got the audio version, well, when I bought the Kindle version, I was able to get the free audio version because I had credits on Audible. Right. So I did, and um, it offered a a download to go along with the. Uh, uh, with the audio version. And I wondered if I'm, I'm going to download it and see, but it might have those questions and other stuff in it too, but it said bonus material. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's in there. And um, you know, this almost sounds like this is an advertisement for uh, Amazon and Kindle. <laughs> and if they want to send us some money. Yeah, it is. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Actually. So uh, Dominique is also, in addition to being the director of um 
racial righteousness and reconciliation for the ECC. He's also adjunct professor at North Park Theological Seminary and serves on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association, which is, uh, I've long loved and appreciated their work. So very cool. All right. Yeah. He says he's trying to get back on, so we'll get him back on here in a minute. Um, but yeah, Craig, yeah. he is, it is, the whole book is just like every chapter, like I said, is immersed in scripture. And, oh, I know. Uh, I love it. Yeah, I did. I yeah, did. So good. Book. I, I, uh, I plowed into it and got through it. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah, glad I did. Okay. It's, it, it's, you know, for people who maybe have a, a, a kind of a knee-jerk reaction to this, you know, this idea of privilege, it's so filled with scriptural reflection, uh, missional theology, um, and these Bible stories that it just feels like such a great way to, to you know, jump into these very difficult yeah. issues. Yeah. So I'll probably ask or ask about this, but I'm, he offered um, three cor- kind of corporate responses, but I've right. more often uh, been faced with some individual responses to that idea of privilege. And there's one in, in particular that always, always comes up. And I wanted to see if he had a reaction to it, but it is um, basically uh, privilege. Like I worked hard for what I've, I've got. Don't you know that I've wor- earned this? Kind of yeah. thing. So there's uh, that one. I'm, I'm looking for the other, the fourth offer one where it's like, oh wow, this is a great roadmap for us to go ahead and uh, <laughs> make, make some, uh, you know, kingdom-centered choices. <laughs> nice. Yes. <clears throat> I looked like his device had to reboot. So what probably yeah. happened is maybe it, it died. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's okay though. Um, anyway, I love that. The, one of our other essays today is going to be um, scripture abuse, because yes. I think uh, Dominic is providing a healthy view of scripture and how we, uh, but we'll talk a little bit maybe after he's done, but, but about Biden's you, use of scripture. That was, that, that was so cringy. Ugh. 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 That Biden's use of scripture went two ways for me. One is like, oh, somebody who knows the Bible for a change. Right, not a. Sure. <laughs> and then it was, but that's not what it means. <laughs> exactly. And to me, it really encapsulates exactly when I was reading this book. I was like, I want so many people who claim biblical literacy to read this because they are not <laughs> biblically uh, literate. Um, because they'll say things like, just talk, just, just do scripture, man. Stop doing politics, you know, or, it is, you know, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It does. You can't. I've, okay. So in other words, you don't want me to do <laughs> scripture. Got it. Okay. You, you want to hear Bible stories, but you don't want to have any ramifications for what you hear. Yeah, tell, yeah exactly what he was talking about. It's like much more for children, you know, what we end up yeah, with. Yeah. yeah then <laughs> actual mature, uh, confrontation of the scripture telling calling us out of you know what we our self-centeredness our personal our enslavement to personal freedom so one one of the things that you know back uh, on. that i really enjoyed about the book as well were the people he quoted to back up his his interpretations oh oh yeah loaded and some loaded. great ones 
Yeah. So it's, it's, it's excellent. Okay. He's coming back on. Hey, there you are. Good to have you hey. back. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> All good. <laughs> we are used to this for usually it's, it's me or something like I'll be driving or something and we'll be like, what? I'm out of service. Um, <laughs> so you offered uh, three corporate responses to when you present privilege. Yep. I was talking to Craig, like um, I get a lot more personal responses and the one I get the most, I wanted to see if you, and you kind of do actually towards the end of the book. Um, but, uh, the response I often get from people is, what do you mean privilege? Uh, I worked hard for what I got. I'd like, I, I don't, I deserve this. I earned it. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm less interested in the, the combating of, people's assertion that they worked hard for what they get i i do believe people do work hard for Mm -hmm. what they get i think what that doesn't fully account for is the ways that other people also work hard but have gotten a different return on their investment Mm -hmm. um and that's where the conversation of privilege skews things it starts to seduce us into believing that we have what we have because we've worked hard in a way that other people haven't when that's not actually always the truth there are other structural realities that ultimately lead to differential outcomes for the same level of investment um, in some circumstances so a perfect example of this would be uh, the money that was allocated towards the creation of suburban communities um, Mm. uh, from, I believe it was 1932 to 1964, there were $120 million invested in housing, new housing for suburban creation, and less than 2% of that money went to non-white families. So it's not about... Yeah, did my family sacrifice and do the work to earn the money to be able to move us into the suburbs? Yes, that's true. They did. But other families did, too. But they were legislatively excluded from being able to reap the perks of the creation of suburban communities. And so privilege starts to blind us to realities like that. And so I'm not really interested in trying to tell people that they didn't work hard for what they got. I believe you did. Um, but I think the problem is the way that privilege, unbridled privilege can start to blind us to the fact that other people have too. And there are strict systems and structures at play that produce differential outcomes that are unjust and unequitable. Um, but I think what I'm most um, interested in is kind of what you were pointing to Craig uh, before is I think one of the reasons why people are so resistant to this conversation is because we've only thought about privilege as a detriment um, or something that actually causes fractures within community which oftentimes it does Um, and when when unbridled it will Um, And the reason why I say that is because, you know, we talk a lot in the church about the mission of God, um, but what we don't talk about is how scripture also lays out for us that Satan has a mission, and Satan's mission is to kill, steal, and destroy our witness. 
And one of the chief ways Satan does that is through seducing us into exploiting privilege for our own benefit and not to think about how we can strategically leverage privilege to expand the kingdom and sacrificially love our neighbors. Uh, the gospel is very clear that we are constantly going to be tempted by Satan to exploit privilege for our own benefit or the benefit of our biological family at the detriment of our neighbors. Um, but when we take on the Philippians 2 mindset, then we actually start to see that there are opportunities for us to strategically leverage what we either have been entrusted with from God or that we have been given by corrupt systems and structures, because there is a dis difference. Um, but regardless of what we have, everything that we have is supposed to be wielded and yielded to God uh, for the expansion of the kingdom and to make God's name loved. So God's name known and love shown throughout the world. I really believe quite simply that's the mission of the church, to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. And how we leverage privilege or how we choose to exploit it for selfish gain will go a long way in our ability to do that, to show who and whose we are. And so this book really wants to invite us to look at the ways in which we can strategically leverage privilege um, to do those things. And so to give you an example of a positive opportunity where um, someone leveraged their privilege and the God put them in a position, because I think part of going back to what you were just saying, uh, Cody, one of the resistance to the conversation of privilege is I, you know, not only did I work hard, but I'm not a privileged person. I've suffered. I had hard, I had hard, times or my family grew up poor or, you know, I've endured injustice. And so I love the story of Joseph because the story of Joseph is this reality where, you know, his brothers kidnap him and basically sell him as human trafficking. Um, and he goes through this horrid time, but then God comes back and appoints him in a position of privilege. He the, becomes the second most powerful man in the land. And he has this critical role of helping to steward the country through this famine. And when Joseph gets in this position of privilege, he has the opportunity to engage his brothers again. And if Joseph's heart wasn't in the right place, and if he didn't take on the mindset of Christ, he could have used his power to, to he could have exploited his power to enact revenge. Um, and he could have sent his brothers away and made them suffer in much the same way they made him suffer. But Joseph realized that his position of power was not just for him to enact revenge and to exploit for his own gratification, but he had a missional purpose to his position of privilege. And his missional purpose was to help the people of God to navigate the complexities of this famine, and he was able to bear witness to who and whose he was through how he chose to respond in that moment. And he chose to leverage his privilege for the furtherance of the kingdom and to love his neighbors and even to love those who had harmed him instead of to exploit his privilege to enact revenge. And so that's the, you know, I think the more that we can talk about privilege as something that 
can help us to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel in innovative and uh, in innovative ways. Uh, I think the more people will be open to the conversation, but I think in doing so, we have to be very clear about the fact that there are certain privileges, there are certain times that privilege has to be laid down. It can't be leveraged. And that was that's one of the real nuances in the book. Um, because when we allow privilege to insulate us and to distance us from the pain of our neighbors and the oppression that's going on in our streets, and it, it, it breeds a kind of callousness to that, to the point that the cries of our wounded neighbors become white noise. Mm. Um, at that point, we have to realize that this privilege is actually taking me away from hearing from God and responding to God's call upon my life. And I need to lay this down um, so that I can be reconnected to the work of the spirit and the pain of my people so that I can bear witness again to who and whose I am through how I choose to live and love in the world. And so for me, John 13, 34 through 35 becomes this really critical passage where Jesus gives us this new commandment as the people of God and says, by how we choose to love one another, the world will know that we are Jesus's disciples. It doesn't say by our culture wars. It doesn't say <laughs> by our creeds. It says by how we choose to embody what we believe and live it out in the world that people will know that we belong to Jesus. And I think that becomes so profoundly informative for what we think about in regards to the mission of the church. Um, there are all of these opportunities where we see our wounded neighbors and the lie of this world tells us that we only have to be concerned with injustice and oppression and harm when it directly impacts us or people that we see ourselves as identified with. But if we really believe that we are an interconnected body, that when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt, then we have to realize that how we choose to respond in the face of harm, again, bears witness to what we really believe. And scripture says it bears witness to who we belong to. And so I, I, I like to say it this way for people. Everything in this world really teaches us that blood is thicker than water. Um, that is everything outside of scripture, which actually tells us that the baptismal waters are thicker than our uh, biological bloodlines. And it's baptism that must redefine who family is for us as the people of God. And if we really ever proclaimed the baptismal vision of family and embodied a baptismal uh, belief in family, then how we responded to issues that don't directly impact us would be profoundly different. We couldn't no longer say, oh, well, I don't have to be concerned with families being separated at the border because that's not my family and I don't know anybody who's being impacted by that. Or I don't have to be concerned about the Me Too movement or the Church Too movement as a male because that's not, it's not impacting me. Uh, we would see that the pain and suffering that our neighbors endure, that our brothers and sisters in Christ endure, are issues that we are being called to 
to enter into in a very incarnational way. Um, and, you know, and we do it because scripture makes it very clear. We know what love is because Jesus first laid down his life for us. And that's that's the definition of how we are supposed to understand love. And so Christ had the opportunity. He had the privilege to stay in heaven and to say, oh, man, look at these wayward children uh, working their way to destruction. But no, love compelled him to enter in when he didn't have to. And he chose to suffer on our behalf. And so it becomes this missional model for us as the people of God, as the world is looking around and they want, they're they wanting to know that something different is possible. We get the opportunity to bear witness to who and whose we are through how we choose to respond in the face of harm. And that's why John 13, 34 and 35 is so important. That's why Jesus takes the time to give us this new commandment. And he says, the world is watching and waiting. They want to see that something else is possible. And we get a chance to bear witness to that through how, again, we respond to the, in the face of harm. And that's why the story of the Good Samaritan is so important. Because we're always tempted to exploit our privilege and pass by on the other side. Oh, I've got, I've got to be at this appointment, or I've got ministry to do, or I've got yada yada. So I can't inconvenience my life to tend to the harm that I see in my midst. And Jesus tells us very explicitly through that parable, this is what a faithful response looks like. It means interrupting your life. It means allowing the spirit to disrupt your plans so that you can tend to and show my love so that my name is known uh, throughout Mm. the world. by how you choose to live and love in the world. And so that's what I think privilege, this conversation of privilege gives us the opportunity to do. It gives us the opportunity to see the ways in which we have slowly but surely kind of been conformed to the pattern of this world that really makes us think that we actually have an option to not be concerned when these things don't happen directly to us, but uh, we actually get the missional opportunity to enter in in a way that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. And when they see us living and loving in that way, they're going to ask why. And this is where we get the opportunity to bear witness to the fact that it's not because we're great people or we're just ethical on our own, but that there is a power at work in and through us that is greater than us, that is willing us to this faithful response. And this is where, again, justice and evangelism come back together and they're wed together. Uh, It's the both and that make it the cross of uh, Christ. Uh, it's the vertical and the horizontal, our, our right relationship with God and our right relationship with neighbor. And we always have to be able to bear witness to the fact that it's not us because we know that as Christian it is no longer us who live, but it's Christ who live in and through us. And so we bear witness to our new life in Christ by how we choose to respond in the face of harm, by how we choose to respond in the face of deception. And there's a lot of deception going on right now. There's a lot of a false teaching that really emboldens a kind of privileged response and an exploitation of privilege that says that I don't have to be concerned about what's going on with other people. I don't have to be a part of partnering with God as a co-labor in reconciling all things to God's self because I didn't do it. I wasn't 
I didn't enact indigenous genocide. I never owned a slave. I wasn't part of supporting the Chinese Exclusionary Act or Japanese internment camps. I didn't do that stuff. So that has no implication for me. And scripture has so many times where it directly speaks to that that logic and that that worldview and says that that's not the way of the cross. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus acknowledges the sins of our of our foreparents, and it says that we have a responsibility to try to bring restoration and reconciliation so that uh, all people can flourish in the way that God created us to. Uh, shalom is something that God desires for all of God's children, not just some, and we get to be a part of rectifying and reconciling not only broken people but also broken systems and structures in our world that continue to produce anti-gospel realities amen and that's where the uh you you use you borrow from uh, isabel wilkerson her metaphor of the house you know what if we walked into the house and we're just like, you know, I'm new here. This is it's my house now, but I did, you know, I didn't do that damage to the uh, frame, the foundation. I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> it's a great metaphor to our, to our own demise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's gonna fall down. All right. So, a word uh, when you were uh, talking there, a word that popped into my head that I uh, yesterday I realized I don't know if it's in every chapter, but it's pretty close to every chapter. And it's the word proximity. Uh, use that quite a bit. Um, And uh, being close to being in, uh, what does proximity look like, say for, well, so Craig, I don't know, you'd probably, we would need to do the work of learning our context here, but Craig and I here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, what, what would be a concrete proximity example, do you think? Was that to me or to Craig? Uh, I don't, to to you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I think proximity, I think we can make it super complicated or we can make it very basic. And so I'll kind of answer it on both levels, but I'll start with the basic. Proximity is really having, developing eyes to see and ears to hear uh, where suffering is around us. And then it's ultimately having the heart to respond to that um, in a way that bears witness to the love of Christ. Um, So you know, proximity could be anything from finding out, well, really, I think the real, the the anchoring passage for us around proximity really is Matthew 25, uh, 31 through 46, um, where Jesus gives us all of these categories of marginality. And he says that there is something about the gospel that is unleashed when we are in relationship, when we commune with people who hold these marginal realities. And I think it's this beautiful illustration of what accountability looks like from scripture, because it says these are people in, in kind of, these are people that we have been socialized by this world to fear, avoid, or shun. And I'm telling you, the closer you get to these people, the more you understand the gospel. And that's just so beautiful. And, and, and it's not that Jesus just comes up with these random list of 
marginal realities these are all realities that jesus himself embodied like and so when jesus says whatever you do to the least of these it's not metaphorical jesus is saying whatever you did to the least of these you did to me because i actually were all of these things in my life Mm -hmm. and and so i think there is a lifeline to the church that proximity provides and Mm -hmm. so it's taking seriously those categories of incarceration of the sick of the hungry of the thirsty of the poor the least of these and saying where are the least of these in my community and am i in relationship with them and is my relationship just a relationship of convenience where i just commune with them when i don't have anything else to do or is this a mutual relationship um am i just going and giving them stuff and then kind of checking it off my checklist or actually am i actually in an authentic relationship with my sisters and brothers who uh fall into these categories um you know with my first book you know it's amazing how explicit in Matthew 25 it is where it tells us that we are supposed to go behind jail cells and prison walls to visit our brothers and sisters who are incarcerated. But if you ask Christians, how many of you have actually ever been to a prison to visit incarcerated folk? Most folks haven't. And it's just, and so I think, you know, Matthew 25 is this call, and it's not in a legalistic, doctrinal, don't hear me as a disciplinary, like, you, you, you unfaithful Christian, but I'm saying this, it's an, it's an invitation, because yeah. it's saying, like, we have to take seriously that there are systems and structures where these folks exist in our communities, but we have been taught by well-intentioned people, oftentimes, to avoid that part of town where those mm. people reside, or to not go and spend time with those who are incarcerated, because if they if they couldn't do the crime, time, they shouldn't have done the crime. And there's all of these ways in which we have these mantras that really do, again, move us towards more conformity to the patterns of this world as opposed to living missionally for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, And I think proximity helps hold us accountable to the countercultural nature of the gospel and the way in which it calls us, again, going back to Philippians 2, to put the interests and concerns of others before our own. And that's really the work of how do we try to resist this temptation to exploit privilege for selfish gain and to strategically leverage it to further the kingdom and sacrificially love our neighbors. And I think without proximity, that temptation is too strong. Um, And I think the spirit uses the power of proximity to help us to realize the biblical truth that we are inherently interconnected to one another and that my flourishing is connected to your flourishing and to take the jeremiah passage seriously that when i seek the peace and the prosperity of my community and not just myself and my biological family that's where my flourishing is found and that's the biblical truth that counteracts the imperial logic and the 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 pattern of this world that all i have to do is focus on you know what's going to be good for me and mine um because the gospel deconstructs that me and mine worldview and actually says that it is about uh, us 
uh, us and a we, not me and mine. And right. it's, it's me understanding how my flourishing and my prosperity is tied up to the community's prosperity and flourishing. And so if I don't see myself as inherently interconnected to the widow in Act 6, and that I should have an intentional care and concern for their humanity and their dignity and to make sure that they are having provisions, then I'm missing something of the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, and we see this in the Old Testament and the New, from gleaning laws to a story like uh, the, the council caring for widows. And so this is the, this is the subversive truth of the inbreaking kingdom that worldly empires tell us that we really only have to prioritize our own flourishing and we have to make our families' lives better. But the gospel tells us that we have to be concerned for the least of these and particularly those who suffer from the effects of sin, uh, individual, systemic, institutional. And we have to make sure that their humanity and their dignity is not infringed upon. Um, so a passage like... Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 becomes so important where there's a letter from the king's mom to the king. And she says, don't be like the rest of these kings out here who are getting drunk on wine and who are abdicating their responsibility to make sure that the least of these and the poor are receiving justice in the courts. You actually have to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves and to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And I think that's a word from the king to her son, but it's a word that reverberates out to the people of God. And becomes part of our mission as the children of God, particularly when we compare, uh, we combine it with a passage like Isaiah 58, which tells us that we're supposed to be repairers of the breach. And this is really important for us as a church because it tells us that breaches exist. And there are these gaps and these chasms that injustice and sin and exploitation have created in our world. And we're supposed to be a part of reconciling them, um, empowered by the Holy Spirit in collaboration with Jesus. And so I think we just haven't taken the holistic nature of the gospel as seriously as we ought. And because of that, we have not been the transformative presence in the world that we have the potential to be. And if we continue to shy away from difficult conversations or complex conversations like privilege, I think we're going to continue to be hamstrung in our witness. And so I really believe having the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to respond to these difficult conversations and pressing into them, but pressing into them in a way that scripture provides the blueprint and the spirit navigates us, uh, I mean, helps us to navigate the complexities, then I think we'll have the opportunity to, again, bear witness to who and whose we are in innovative and surprising ways that really will bring kingdom transformation in our midst. You know, you just mentioned the, the word innovation, innovative ways, and thinking of that concept of proximity. Um, what I'm curious about is, do you have um, what kind of you have an overview of a number of congregations within your denomination and, and beyond? Have you seen um, some innovation? Have you seen some ways that congregations are are moving in that direction? And you know, how do they get started? How do they how do they get the ball rolling on some of these things? 
Yeah, um, I have. Um, there's some really exciting, creative stuff that's going on. So there's a congregation, a uh, couple of our congregations up in the Pacific Northwest Conference of the country um, have started uh, new life-giving partnerships with indigenous communities on reservations. Um, there's a ministry in particular up in Washington that we collaborate with called Mending Wings uh, that really focuses on um, how do we invest in and um, collaborate with the flourishing of indigenous youth who have a limited access to some of the resources and um, social capita that many of their peers have access to and how do we um, create space for them to affirm the goodness of their indigenous culture but also say that you know we have things that you can teach us but we also have ways that we can partner with you so that again we can all have this more holistic understanding of how God is at work in the world and so that's been this beautiful partnership um there is another uh We've also done stuff with uh, folks like uh, Ida from Randy Whitley up in the Pacific Northwest Conference and all of the works that they're doing to call us back to a reconciled relationship with creation and the land. And how do we learn from our indigenous sisters and brothers about what faithful stewardship of the land looks like um, and how as we get reconnected to the land, we also get reconnected to God in some unique ways. Um, I think about a collaboration that we do in the uh, Midwestern uh, portion of the uh, country. Uh, this one is through our denomination seminary. Um, so uh, our denomination seminary is North Park Theological Seminary. And one of the ways we've been trying to get more proximate to suffering is through the conversation about incarceration. And so we actually started a new program, a master's program called the School of Restorative Arts, where we have created a combined learning classroom where there are students who are free students who are pursuing their master's education, who go inside of a maximum security prison, and they uh, we create cohorts of free and incarcerated students who walk together for the course of four years, and they are uh, discipled in pastoral ministry. And so we actually have... Um, men inside of this maximum security prison who are being trained to be pastors who are actually functioning as a pastoral presence behind bars who are actively making disciples who make disciples behind bars um, and this program has been so transformative for uh, the prison that we're in that we're actually getting requests from other prisons in the region asking if we can send some of the men we've invested in and worked with as prison missionaries to their campuses to start uh, uh, church communities behind bars. And the focus of the program is really to build up everyday peacemakers in conflict-ridden spaces. And there are few spaces more conflict-ridden than our carceral system today. And so there's just innovation happening all across the board. And, and the, one of the things that's really cool about that program is we're the only institution in the entire state of Illinois that is providing master's level education for incarcerated people. 
Uh, there are a number of other institutions that are providing undergraduate education, but we're the only one that's providing graduate education. And that's really important because it's been proven that the most cost effective and the most efficient way to reduce recidivism, which is people going back to um, incarceration after they've been released, is access to higher education behind bars. And the, the more advanced the education, the less recidivism rates uh, for people who have been exposed to it. And so that's just another kind of example of uh, an ecclesial or church-based uh, innovation that is really uh, bearing, bearing kingdom fruit in our midst. Those, those are really cool. Uh, as, as, we, as we wrap things up or when we wrap things up, it'd be great, it'd be great if we could get, I found the links for the, for the, um, um, graduate seminary program and I also found it for mending wings but mending I didn't wings. see the one for, the, for the, the other one so I'll give you one to, for that too yeah it'd be great to, to have those uh, to present those yeah okay I have one more question uh but then five more questions but the five <laughs> questions are the five questions are our finishing five so they're kind of quick ones but uh, we do them for every guest but okay but there's a phrase that you another phrase that gets used a lot in the um the book and especially in the end and it's this it's the cure for the pain lies in the pain what does that mean yeah um so i'll go theological for for us real quick um you know we are western christianity is infatuated with the belief that we can be beneficiaries of the resurrection without having to endure crucifixion Mm. Mm. and the reality of the gospel of jesus christ is that the cure for the pain is in the pain uh that we have to do the hard work of dying to self so that new life can can emerge um and within our communities of faith, within our um, congregations, there are things that need to die so that new life can actually flourish. And I think many of those places that need to die, we have avoided going there because of the pain that death is. Death is a painful process. And putting things that have been culturally normative to death so that new life can emerge is a painful process. Um, so I think about this both in our individual lives and I think about this congregationally. In both ways, it's painful. And I think a part of what this avoidance has done is that we have not made disciples who have fully submitted their lives to Jesus Christ. In a lot of respects, what we've done all too often is we've made people who are modified versions of their old selves, but they're still in control. It's not them who have died in Christ who has risen and lives in and through them, but it is a modified version. It's behavioral modification uh, because it allows us to stay in charge. And, and that in a lot of respects is more comfortable, but it's not more faithful. And so we have to do the hard work of finding the ways in which we are still resisting the spirit to, to stay in control of our lives and mm -hmm. to really look at the ways in which, you know, we've been discipled to think that certain things are beyond the purview of the gospel. Mm -hmm. So 
for example, a lot of people have been discipled to think that the conversation about race is a secular issue. It's beyond the purview of the gospel. The gospel is not concerned with this matter. The gospel is concerned with saving souls. And that is a limited and very detrimental understanding of the gospel that doesn't allow us to bear witness to who and whose we are through how we respond to racial harm in the world. Um, and so it's the work of really starting to reckon with the ways in which I still think that I'm Lord over certain parts of my life. Um, and that there are certain things that are beyond God's purview and to actually do the hard work of learning to submit, submit my life and then in its entirety to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and deconstruct these worldly logics that are still kind of at play in our mind, even if they're latent, uh, where we have conformed again to the patterns of this world and we think things that are really anti-gospel um, and to deconstruct them and reconstruct them in Christ-centered ways. So it's a long like answer. That's a long answer, but that's, that's, that's the answer. Yeah, that word uh, deconstruction, I thought of it all the way through the reading too. I was like, because there's a lot, man, that we need to uh, deconstruct. And I also, I couldn't help but also read in a little bit. I mean, maybe it's just because where we are right now, but uh, even the COVID-19 situation and uh, so much of what, you know. Of, COVID of should make the conversation of privilege so much more accessible. Right. If you had the opportunity to work from home during this pandemic, you are a person of privilege. It's yeah. that simple. It's that yep. simple. Yep. Uh, there are so many of our sisters and brothers who were forced to go out in front face and put themselves at risk of catching the virus in a way that us who didn't have to front face, that's a privilege. And like for us to not be able to name that and reckon with that, that is, that's an indictment on us. That's not... Yeah. You know, and so I think it's it's a way to to open up the conversation in a way that's super tangible and approachable and to say we don't have to be afraid of this. I think we as the church, yeah. we have allowed the world to to co-opt these conversations and to dictate how they they are had so that when we try to have them in the church, people denounce them as political. Right. These are biblical theological it's conversations that scripture consistently is raising, but because we failed to have them, yep. the culture has dictated how they have, how they are had. And so yep. when we try to be responsible with the text and actually bring them up from the text, people denounce them and decry them as political. Yeah. These are not political conversations. These are biblical conversations that we need to have the integrity to reclaim and to have in a biblically based way. And that yeah. is where we will be able to be freed and liberated again to fully give ourselves to God and to and to to be the transformative presence in the world that we're commissioned by the word of God to be. Mm. Amen. Woo. <laughs> Love it. All right, here's our finishing five. These are our hot, sweet seat questions we always put our guests on. All, All right? right, let's do it. Here we go. Okay, <laughs> question number one. What are you drinking? So it can be something you're literally drinking right now if you got by your side or like what's your go-to drink? Um, so what I'm drinking right now is water. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
what am I liking these days? I've been really into kombucha right now. Um, so yeah, kombucha would be my drink of choice right now. Oh, nice. Okay. We haven't had a kombucha I, for a while. You know? I don't think so. I don't I think, think so. so. Yeah. I had one the other day that I accidentally left out. Oh. And yeah. So I had that to, wasn't great. To go, no, exactly. <laughs> I had to go through the process of opening it and emptying it and yeah. not being able to drink it. I was a little bummed. But anyway. <laughs> All right. Next question. What are you reading? So it can be a book that you are caught up with or a magazine or a newspaper article or an essay or a blog that you yeah. recommend? I'm finishing the book, How the Word is Passed. Right now. <gasps> yes, I've got that one. It is phenomenal. It is mm. one of the most important books in the last few years nice. that I've read. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I got that too. Uh, a friend of mine named Anthony Smith, he, he was recommending it. And I was like, I'm getting that. If Anthony's recommending it, I'm getting it. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. What are you watching? So it can be what you're binging on, you know, Netflix or Hulu or a documentary that you think everyone should watch or a YouTube channel people should check out. So those are two different questions. What I'm watching, what people should check out. What you're watching. Yeah. Vulnerability here. I don't know. Yeah. I just started watching The Chair. Um, there's been a oh, lot yeah. of conversations uh, going on about that. And so I just started tuning into that. It's about <laughs> an Asian American woman who steps into the chair of a department oh. on a college campus and kind of some of uh, the complexities of her trying to navigate that call. And so is that with uh, Margaret that... Cho? Is that Margaret yeah. uh, Cho's the Okay, okay. Awesome. Okay. That no, it's, good. It's, it's a binge worthy uh, uh, show. Carla and I watched it through last weekend. We're just kind of like, oh, one more. Yeah, one more. Okay, one more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'll have to check that one out too. All right. What are you listening to? So, new music you're checking out, old music you always want to bump, or a uh, podcast that you like to listen to? So, I'll give you two things. Um, Music that I just feeds my soul that I go back to, back to over and over again is Common Hymnal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Common Hymnal is a life source for me. Um, Love. The podcast that I've probably been most diligently listening to is the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Um, they're a group out of Minnesota, um, and I feel like they have intentionally pivoted over the last year to really reckon with some of what's going on in our world. Um, they really caught my attention when they did a four-part podcast series on what is uh, critical race theory and how do we uh, um, understand it. And they brought in a professor from Wheaton College who teaches critical race theory at Wheaton College um, and actually really helped people to understand what critical race theory is and what it's not and how it can actually be a helpful tool, particularly within its original framework 
for Christians to understand uh, the complexity of sin and how it has established uh, footholds uh, all throughout our our world. So, nice, good, very good. Okay, final question. Craig and I show up at your door. Where are you taking us for dinner? <laughs> Ooh, um. So my wife and I just went to a restaurant on the day my book was launched. Um, She took me as a kind of congratulations. And the place was surprisingly good. Um, (laughs) I just, I don't know. I, I hadn't looked it up and I hadn't known about it. And so I was a little bit like, oh, okay, we'll check it out. And I was pleasantly surprised. Um, The name of the restaurant is called City Pharmacy. Um, and so it was, it was something that I'm like, that's a kind of abstract name for a restaurant. I wasn't <laughs> super thinking it was going to be good, but it was, a, it was really good. So, uh, oh, portions awesome. really tiny little, you know, five milligram portions. And, yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. So, so where, where are you? Where, where, where is this restaurant? Yeah. So I, uh, relocated from Chicago to back to Georgia uh, in March. And so I am in Metro Atlanta um, in a city called Conyers. All right. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. I love it. Now we know what it is. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Awesome. City pharmacy. Okay. I love it. Ooh, I'm reading the description. It sounds pretty cool. It's a collaboration of chefs, Farmers and artisans intent on expanding the culinary horizon of, it says Covington, that must be a... Yep, it's a neighboring city. Yep. Gotcha. That's Very nice. cool. That's pretty cool. Ooh. All right. Yeah. Let's uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, Come yeah. Down. <laughs> nice. Well, very cool. Thank you so much for joining us and letting us uh, hear a little bit about your heart and your passion and the book. Everybody go get it. So good. And uh, I'm going to check out your first one. Because I yeah. learned about the first one by. And I heard about the first one, but like so many books, I get my wish list gets really long, and then I pick up the latest one, and yeah, it's it's in that pile somewhere. <laughs> That's been one of the beautiful things about this that that people have deemed this book worthy enough to read backward, read me backwards, and so okay. I'm super thankful about that. But I also want to share with your community that there is also an an accompanying small group video-based curriculum that goes with the book. And so there are eight sessions, about 20 minutes per session, where we go through each of the chapters and break them down and give us modern day applications and um, connect them to real stuff that's happening in real time. So that could be a real blessing to be able to unpack this in community because this work is meant to be done communally not individually Uh, there's a there's a communal and individual element to it but the real work of working this out is a communal process very cool so i'll send that to you all and y'all can put it in the show notes love it very cool awesome thank you yeah we're gonna i may we'll probably use that uh, at our church maybe because um so you just quick uh, proximity we are very close to a reservation 10 minutes mm-hmm. away from the headquarters of reservation up, up, up here and we've been the last year like 
we want to we want to be in proximity. So it could be a helpful tool here. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Good to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you and good to be introduced to you and your community. It's a joy to be on with you all. Awesome. Thank you. All right. We'll see y'all later. All All right. right. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thanks for joining Cody Stauffer and me, Craig Morton, for this podcast. We simply try to record and upload without much editing. What you get is live conversation with all its ignorance and insight, wisdom, and foolishness sometimes more of one than the other, and occasionally profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Make sure to follow us on Facebook at the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment. And look for upcoming Facebook Live podcasts where you can interact with our guests. Also, we can be found on Twitter as at All That's Holy. Our intro and outro music is by At the Speed of Darkness. Support At the Speed of Darkness on Bandcamp and buy his music there, as well as follow him on Instagram at At the Speed of Darkness. 